Or will you, with the rage and fury of the wrongs committed against you, find your voice? Will you say no? And will your comrade beside you also say no? And the voice of labor, the voice of a mighty stirring giant, will crush the system with one word. No! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, this is the voice of the oppressed pronouncing the doom of oppression! Welcome to American Moments. This is Matt. And this is Adam. And thanks for joining us today. We are going to be covering The Jungle today. The Jungle Book. Yeah. Yes, with Mowgli. Yeah. Oh, nice. And what was the name of that python <laughs> evil thing that was Angelina Jolie in the actual movie? I don't know anything of what you just said. Did I research the wrong topic? No, you may have. I just oh, okay. Seen the all movie. right. Well, wow. all right. Wow. This is <laughs> awkward. This is awkward. <laughs> this is really Usually awkward. I know the terrible pop culture. <laughs> References. Well, apparently I don't know them that well. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness. Yep. We are going to be talking about the novel by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle. How how it affected American society. Before we start talking about what The Jungle is, I'm really excited about doing this one. My my seventh grade history class was an actual two-period history class. It was a history and English class combined called American Connections. And... It basically went from 1850 to 1950, the history of America, and in it, we also read books that were that took place during that time. Um, a lot of that was, you know, inspired me to really actually love history. So mm-hmm. I attribute a lot to that class. But the most memorable book that we talked about, we didn't read this book, but the most memorable we talked about and its impact was actually The Jungle. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience. And what it, what it was fascinating to me about the jungle was how our our modern sensibilities about what socialism became kind of a, has tarnished really what a, a lot of the point of the book was and, and the way we view it through a modern lens. So in I wonder if we were equipped at that age to really understand and be able to, to, to dive through the nuances in fact, I don't know if we're equipped right now, but we're going to do our right. best. Yeah, I'm but sure there are some bells. Of, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it kind of rhymes sometimes. And there's some things that are very germane to today, like issues of income inequality and the divide versus rich and poor. Yep. That obviously it's not the same as it was back then. But I found this just fascinating to read, to read, look at again after you know my seventh grade experience, like you had. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So dive dive into it. Let's kind of explain what the jungle was. And and again, if you if if you were expecting to hear about the Disney movie, you can tune out now because uh, this is going to be a little bit more dark. <laughs> All right. So the jungle um, was a 1906 American novel written by an author, Upton Sinclair. Um, the base the premise of the book was really to point out the exploitation of American workers in industrial cities and in, and in factories, you know, meatpacking plants, things like that, and, and even more specifically, American immigrants. And I, I kind of thought it was funny researching why he chose meatpacking. Obviously, it was kind of low-hanging fruit, but he was also a vegetarian. And, and kind <laughs> well, of, yeah, yeah, he despised meat to begin with, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another interesting fact about Upton Sinclair, and this one we may need to cut out, but absolutely not. We're definitely he, keeping it in. He truly believed that sex should only be done to procreate. And that is it. That is the only reason to have sex. He sounds like a fun guy to hang yeah, out with. Yeah, I yeah. think he was. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, we'll talk about it here in a minute, but I, I mean, wouldn't it be fun to just go work in a meat pa- meat packing plant for for a couple months? And in 1906? Yeah, I mean, he's he's he doesn't sound like he's the same idea of fun as a lot of us do. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so uh, as I mentioned, it's re- the point was really to point out the exploitation of American immigrants in, in the industrial era that we had there in, in big industrial cities, specifically Chicago, New York, Boston, things like that. It also was really a statement on socialism. I mean, 
Upton Sinclair was a socialist, and he believed that socialism was good for the people and capitalism was not. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that for a minute. But, I mean, the political leadership at the time was pretty fascinating. There was populism, as we look mm-hmm. at it today, in my mind is kind of – it's not – laughable is not the right word. But the the divide between the status quo and the quote unquote populist candidates, like you know the great ones like Williams Jennings Bryan on you know his his cross of gold speech like that. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. The divides yeah. and the actual ideological differences were so much more profound than they are today. So, I mean, do you want to kind of take us through who the president was at the time? And Yeah, sure. So, um, at the time, the president was Teddy Roosevelt. So, Teddy Roosevelt really was part of a series of progressive presidents that were trying to reform the country. Um, one thing that Teddy, Teddy pushed through was the square deal. The principles for which we stand are the principles of fair play and a square deal for every man and every woman in the United States. A square deal politically, a square deal in matters social and industrial. And the square deal had threefold items. They're, they're all kind of random. They don't really relate to each other, but protect businesses from the demands of organized labor which is interesting because that's going to play right into the jungle. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about um, the conflict it caused between Upton Sinclair and the president yeah. at the time. And the third piece was a promise to provide pure food and drug to the country. Back then, you know, at the turn of the century, there, were no, there was no FDA. There were no rules around what you could serve or sell. There's my air quotes mm-hmm. again. Serve or sell as food. Yeah. And I think... Before we get too far on off of TR, he's just a fascinating president. I don't. Did yeah. you listen to Dan Carlin's American Peril, where he talks about uh, the Spanish American War? I didn't. I the the thing that just cracks me up is he refers to TR as a as a racist version of Peter Pan, like <laughs> because you know he was he's a, an adventure guy, and you know he he, he wanted to go fight in a Spanish. He was a rough rider. He was in a Spanish American War, but there's yeah. this this confluence in his personality that not a lot of people spend a lot of time on where he had this I want to protect national forests uh-huh. and I want to I want to protect it. what really drove him nuts was he called the the snake oil salesman of the time people there was all these tonics you know that were being licensed yeah. as cure-alls and there was cocaine in children's Benadryl as we would call it today and that drove him nuts so he was almost I think today almost politically undefinable yeah you know he really he played from, not the cuff, but he really, what he believed is what he, he did. You know, he didn't really necessarily follow the political lines. I mean, he did to an extent to get to the position he did. But, you know, after after he um, was not president anymore, he ran again on, on the bull moose. Yeah. Um, Platform. And got shot and finished his speech. <laughs> He's a tough guy. <laughs> and finished his speech. And finished it. I'm, 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 I'm not kidding. But yeah. but I think what made him him was the fact that he kind of was a rich guy. And there, mm-hmm. there's a joke that people have about people who are high-minded liberals that they are that because they can they can afford to be. He kind of was that way a little bit because sure. you know he he could look at things. He didn't have to come up through a party apparatus and toe the line, and and he could just be himself. Yep. So. Yeah, and that's what the country needed at that time. Let me just jump back a little bit um, to talk a little bit more about, you know, with, with that in mind, Upton Sinclair and how the jungle was made. Okay. So Upton Sinclair was a muckraker. And a muckraker is a reporter that highlights injustice in the world, you know, specifically corruption. So as we mentioned, he was a socialist, and he really believed that capitalism was destroying the American dream for anyone who wasn't you know, a corrupt politician or a owner of a, a plant, an owner of a, a factory. He actually went undercover in, in a Chicago meatpacking plant for two months to really record what the, uh, what the conditions were. Now, he definitely had an agenda, so <laughs> what, he ca- what he gathered was what, what he wanted to see, but a lot of it was true. And I mean, that really was the basis for this novel, this fictional novel 
called The Jungle. But, you know, it's not like he could just go in with his glasses and his turtleneck sweater on and get a job. So getting a job at a meatpacking house was no little deal. You had to look big. You know, in the novel, they talk about Mm -hmm. first-pass workers, and those were the guys who had not been injured before and who looked big enough. So you look at Upton Sinclair, you think of this high-minded Woodrow Wilson coffee house type. So I don't want to minimize what it took for him to actually get a job in one of these places. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He had an agenda. So, I mean, he did what it took to get into this plan. So anyway, he did that. And started to write this novel. And this novel, as we mentioned, was really to point out um, the atrocities that were happening to these American immigrants. And also how socialism can fix that and how capitalism creates it. So the, the book was actually first released in 2005 as a serial in a socialist magazine. He tried to find people to publish it. No one would publish it because it was, it was fairly risque at the time. I mean... You know, we're, we're talking about it now, 100 years later. So the name of that serial was Appeal to Reason. Again, it was a socialist paper. Um, at one point, it had a quarter of a million people that, that were subscribed to it. So it was a pretty large paper. Then, he, in the next year, he actually self-published it himself as, as a standalone novel. And just an interesting fact with that, he actually published it as a socialist party novel and actually included the American Socialist logo uh, on the cover of the book. Which is what? I don't know. Probably like a bunch of people standing, holding hands? I don't know. No, Weren't I don't that, know. Wasn't it a lot more violent back then? Like, you know, like <laughs> skewering a capitalist on a, on a pike or something like that? But anyway, it was, the book came out and it was profound. I mean, we'll get into how this happened, but the American public noticed it. And it, it definitely had a profound effect. On American society, American laws, and Americans' opinions on workers. Okay, so I think it, it, going going kind of back into what is socialism. I, I I don't want to be a pill pusher, but today I'm going to. All right, I want everyone to take a pill and go back in time with me to the time before Russia existed, the the Soviet Union. Russia again? Yeah, right? yeah it always. They thank always you, Russia. Yeah, they always screw everything up. But. Um, the Soviet Union has very much tainted the Soviet Union's mm-hmm. version of socialism, which became communism, right. and then China's version of communism, which which came from the Soviet Union. Yeah, this is all really thanks to, to the Soviet Union. Lenin, Back Lenin. when this book Lenin. was released, there were a lot of really good reasons you may want to be a socialist. Mm-hmm. Now, looking back now through our modern lenses. We know what happened with that specific experiment and communism and right. socialism. But the way that they looked at socialism back then, especially in the United, in the United States, mm-hmm. there are two really ways you could look at socialism. The way that, that it un, unfolded in Russia, which was called a dictatorship of the proletariat, which basically means you have a strong arm, a, a dictator, and you seize power through armed intervention. Mm-hmm. In the United States at this time, we were living in a gilded age. There was a lot of good things about being in America. There was, but all of the agrarian population had started—not uh, all of it, but a, a lot of people had started moving towards the uh, the cities to work in factories. This was the gilded age: the Standard Oil, credit, the Credit Mobilier scandal, big business taking advantage of industrialization and really reaping mass profits from it. But those profits weren't really making their way to the masses. When factory workers were increasing tenfold, nine million immigrants entered the United States. This caused a huge demand for goods, which increased prices for, mm-hmm. for your average worker. But you had the, the confluence of the, the cost of labor going down because there was so much competition for right. all those jobs. Your average work week was six days. You'd work 57 hours. The work conditions were not wonderful. Uh, what what you think of today. When you go into your coffee break rooms today and you see your rights as a worker, this is very different from the way things were then. You yes. really didn't have a rights for a worker. So No. A, as a worker. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, as a whole, you know, tying it back to Teddy here, like that was not something that people were seeking. You know? No. Politicians, owners, that, there, was, there, was no, there was no voice of the yeah. workers. And in 1900, at this point... The average was 35,000 workers were killed a year in industrial accidents. 
According to the Yale Encyclopedia of U.S. Economic History, 500,000 people were also maimed in factory accidents. And you may say, that, well, that's just the times. No, it's not the times. In industrialized nations, we had the highest rate of workplace accidents in the world. And what really kind of fostered this was the fact that the companies weren't on the hook for it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you got injured at work, tough break. There was no paid time right. off. Uh, they, they didn't even have to pay you. They had a company doctor, and I'm doing, my, I'm doing air quotes this time, a company doctor who would come in and basically say, uh, tough break, this isn't our fault, and just move on. Children were a big part of the workforce at this point. There was, in 1900, there were 1.7 million children under the age of 15 working in America. These kids ended up with spine curvatures, stunted growth, contagious diseases, mm-hmm. and 19% of labor was still under the age of 15, even in 1912. So this is a big, this is a big, big, big issue. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's such a young age. It is. It is. And it, it's just, it's just you know, yeah. you kind of look at where we are now and, and kind of appreciate a little bit. So this wasn't limited to just corporate America, and a lot of the issue, again, becomes legal liability. And as for a, a teaser of, of a new episode that we're going to be doing in the future, there was the Johnstown Flood in 1887, where a, a dam that was mismaintained by a rich elite businessman uh, who had their own hoity-toity sporting club mm-hmm. broke and killed over 2,000 residents in Johnstown. And due to legal issues... None of these people had any any compensation. Nope. This was the this was the era. It was very much, and these were guys like Andrew Carnegie and Mellon. Mm-hmm. And there was just a very big feeling of class divisiveness that was ep- epidemic, and the whole yeah. system was just set up to to serve the elite. So the Socialist Party was founded by a guy named mm-hmm. Eugene Debs in 1901. This is very different from the socialism or or com- communism that you think of in Russia, China, North Korea, but. It was we we're in America, we're we're in a great spot. We want to democratically we want to upend we still want to right. the, the, the foundation of socialism and communism is a, is a, attaining the, the mm-hmm. means of production, which is taking over the factories. Well and you see this, I mean, in Europe there's still socialist parties that mm-hmm. have, share some of these values that that were the the socialist party in mm-hmm. America at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you, you got my grandpa saying things like, "Oh, that pinko commie." Right. But back then, it wasn't a crackpot thing. You had, as Alice Cooper and Wayne's World very deftly pointed out, I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee is the fact that it's the only major American city to have ever elected three socialist mayors. Does this guy know how to party or what? You know, there was socialist mayors, you know, like in Milwaukee, right? But there was even congressmen back then. I mean, there, there yeah. was, it, I mean, Eugene yes. Debs, I mean, it, by the last time he ran for president mm-hmm. in jail, he got the, a, a lot of votes. Getting to issues with the meatpacking industry in particular, meat was becoming an issue because it had become industrialized. So when you when you got when you bought a, a hamburger or you bought a steak, a lot of times that that had come from an agrarian uh, like a farm or or some sort, mm-hmm. sort of local slaughterhouse. But it, it had become factory based industrialized business. And issues were there were lack of lack of inspectors. They were irregular at best, and they were often corrupt. E. coli, which caused a lot of uh, caused most of the the food poisoning, was brought into factories for, through lack of sanitary conditions. Dead animals were slaughtered to be eaten. Meat that was not mm-hmm. fit to be eaten or not not fit for the the first cut or you know your roast was then put into canned meat, again, air, air quotes, which was just basically the refuse. Yeah. I mean, if I can quote something here, yeah, go for it. The, yeah. the jungle, but, you know, there's a chapter in the jungle that speaks specifically what you're talking about. The government inspector who checks the slaughtered pigs for signs of tuberculosis often lets several carcasses go unchecked. Spoiled meat is specifically doctored in secret before it is scattered among the rest of the meat in preparation for canning and, pan- and packing. So literally... They're putting t- tuberculous-filled meat in these cans of meat that they're selling to the public. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to it later, but they also put additives. I mean, so eating sausage back then was a terrifying thing. Right. They'd it's put, like a McDonald's hamburger now, right? Yeah, I, I don't think it's that bad, but it was pretty bad. I mean, so so they, w- they would have uh, th- these sausage makers put rotten potato flour in and all these additives yeah. that were just anything that you thought would add taste to make rot- rancid meat. Tastes better. Tastes better. Yeah, I mean, this was really tough. So there was a, a joke. Amazing. There was a joke in the New York Post that said, "Quote: 
Mary had a little lamb that had begun to sicken, and then they sent it to Packingtown and labeled it as chicken. I mean, <laughs> so that that was kind of their the, uh-huh. the way they looked at it then. And, and lastly, before we move on to the novel, one one of the big things we we've fought a war against uh, against Spain, and in 1900, more of our soldiers died because of canned meat than by Spanish troops. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, so there was just, it was Wild West. It was buyer yeah. beware. You go to the stores today and you, even you buy your spam, you know that there's a, a process, that there's a, a mm-hmm. care and handling. There's a chain of custody with your meat. You didn't know that back then. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so do you want to get into the... Yes. Yeah. Enter the jungle. Okay. Yeah. Right? So the jungle takes place in Packingtown which is the area of Chicago where all the meatpacking plants are. The main protagonist is a Lithuanian immigrant named Jurgis, or Jurgis. Jurgis. Your Jurgis. pronunciations are just fantastic. I know. Yeah. I should know Jurgis. <laughs> yeah. So it follows Jurgis, or Jurgis, whichever way you want to call it, um, as well as his family and friends and their search for the American dream. So that's the beginning. That's probably the first chapter. <laughs> It Maybe opens, with, it opens a with a pretty cool, with their wedding. It's a wedding. And, and it, right. I, I think it's a fascinating chapter because... Well, it shows, like, it shows, it shows the good qualities of Jurgis. It makes you like Jurgis. It makes you like his, his wife, Una. Both of them. And Jurgis. Um, but but they... Jorgis. <laughs> but they... <laughs> anyway, Jorgis. We'll call him Jorgis. Mm, yeah. Jorgis and Una get married. But I think that it was kind of... You don't really pick up on it till the end of towards the end that these they're from Lithuania and mm-hmm. they had come to America because they they thought that they would have more opportunity in the United States. Right, and it's this opulent wedding kind of. It kind of reminds you of like the Godfather that started. And you're like, oh, this is really mm-hmm. neat. But then you start getting little details like, oh, we're gonna owe the local bartender about two hundred bucks, you right. know, and things like that, and. You, you, this is your first glimpse into how these these old European customs are just struggling to hold on to. Yep. No, we can't go to America and just go to the courthouse. We have to spend our life savings and hold yes. on to our Lithuanian identity. So, interestingly, I think this is the first point where Sinclair kind of inserted his belief that socialism is better. Because at the end of the party, they owe the, the restaurant $100 that they don't have to pay. Um, but what's sad is... Well, back in Lithuania, at the end of the party, everybody chips in a little bit of money and pays for it so we don't have that bill. Yeah. And here in the new world, this capitalist world, nobody did that. So anyway, that's that's a happy chapter until the end. And then from there, the book just goes downhill. That's the happiest yep, chapter. Yeah, that is the happiest <laughs> chapter. It re- Really what unfolds is the slow destruction of Jurgis and his family based on the corruption all around them. You know, the corruption of the plant owners, the corruption of politicians – they're just not protected. They're in a world where no laws protect the worker. Uh, leadership is corrupt from, like I said, from plant owners to politicians to realtors to solicitors. It's all, they're all corrupt. Well, it, no it's rules. just, well, there are no, that's exactly it. This whole place is just set up for confidence men to take over. Mm-hmm. There's the house that they get where yes where they i mean they i think they had something like five hundred dollars scraped together between all of them and the way that it worked was there was a guy advertising houses and mm-hmm. of course these guys have the beautiful family pictures. has beautiful pictures right. but there's also language barriers here right and right. Then, and they go and they and, and basically what it is is a rent to own type of thing right you miss a payment you get evicted but what it was also weird is you find out afterwards that you have to pay the interest. They, they they go. They look at the contract. Yorgis is in is at work and can't really look at it. And the girls go and they sign the contract. Yorgis freaks out and goes and hires a lawyer who's supposed to act on his behalf. Right. Then goes in to go deal with the the, the property owner mm-hmm. and salutes him on a first name basis, gives right. him a hug. He was in on and it and says, "Yeah, this is fine. Don't worry about it." Then yep. they find out from another Lithuanian immigrant that there's another interest charge that basically forces their them to send their kids to work so that they can pay mm-hmm. for it. So they're all just the, – the big thing is there's no safety nets. They're all always on a slender reed right. about, to, about to topple over. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's, that's a great example where they bought the house. You know, another example is Jorgis is working and he injures himself. He sprains his ankle, so he's out of work for a month. Well, his dad just died right before that too. 
Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> His dad died in a job that he shouldn't have been working. Right, exactly. Know? Again, yeah. no protection. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Jorgis injures himself. He can't work for a month. He injures himself at work, so it's a work injury. But there was no laws in place for the employer to help them because they can't work because of an injury at work. So there's basically no money coming into the house for a month. I mean, it, it starts a tailspin. You know, Jurgis mm-hmm. disappears for a while. <laughs> well, so it, the, the other thing is they, they start to get more wise to what's going on. And, and mm-hmm. basically they find out that paying off the house is almost ca- is called is referred to as cheating the building company because it happens so rarely. And, and then what happens is when you fall behind a certain amount of payments. Then, of course, Ona has her own issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ona Ona kind of represents... Innocence. Traditional female qualities at the turn of the century, right? So innocence. Victorian, very Victorian. Docileness, kindness. um, And she's taken advantage of. I mean, she... Probably the low point for Ona is when she is taken advantage of and raped by her her boss. Yeah. And there's no recourse there. Jorgis goes and beats him up or tries to beat him up and he gets thrown in jail. Charles Bronson. I mean, we all would love that, but you know, that we'd all love to handle it that way. Right. But, and, and she's yeah. just scared of telling Jorgis that. Ona's a great tool that Upton used because this, this incident really started the deterioration of her health and made her more fragile. And, you know, halfway through the book, Ona dies giving, giving birth to a child. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, I mean, she represents degradation of humanity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, and going back, so, so Jorgensen goes and beats uh, beats the crap out of her boss. Great. Mm-hmm. He gets his momentary victory. But he goes in again with limited English language skills to a court right. where, again, his prosecutor and the jug, bas- the, the jug, the jug. jug. Yeah. The, the prosecutor and the judge basically hug. They sentence him for 30 days. And... In his mind, he knows mm-hmm. my family is out my, uh, what is it, a dollar fifty a day? Right. Which, and he knows that they're all, they're at a tipping point with their landlord to begin with. Yep. And so he knows for 30 days, no one can get in touch with him. And eventually, uh, one of them comes to visit him, but just asking him if, if he has any money to give. And he's in this ironic situation where he's in jail being fed. And he has the moment where he's like, why don't you put my family in jail and feed them and I'll go out and try to fix things. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it was 30 days he was in jail or something mm-hmm. like that. The first time. Comes home, basically races home, and the the house is painted a different color. It looks nice. And the, the roof is fixed, which he's been, been basically begging for. Yeah. And a kid comes out and sneers at him and tells him to go away and finds out that They've been kicked out. Lost the house. And Ona and his family have gone to a boarding house to live there, mm-hmm. which is not a nice place. Right. Where they started. Yeah. Yeah. In a very dramatic scene. And and, and a lot of this is for dramatic license. A lot mm-hmm. of this, I read an article about this, that the odds of all these terrible things happening, and, and it's we're not done yet. It gets, it gets worse, if you can believe that. Yep. The odds of all these terrible things happening to one family is is almost unheard of, but he uses this family as a way of outlining all these things happening. So yes. Ona's pregnant with their second child, and they're at a boarding house, and they had no money to even get a midwife. So they're kind of they're up these rickety stairs. She has to climb a ladder to go in this room where she can actually give birth, mm-hmm. and they don't let Yorgis in because. And she's she's weak. She's tired. Yeah, exactly. You know, as I mentioned, yeah. So he basically goes, begs, borrows, and steals to find a midwife to go to go help out, and to no avail. Right. And, and now he owes the midwife still uh, afterwards, and he just breaks. Chica- mm-hmm. Chicago's one. Chicago's one. I mean, he loses the child and yep. his wife. Yeah, and he and he just he goes, goes in vagabond style, yep. which was pretty regular apparently. And he he goes off to the country. To go yes. work on farms, which he gets his health back. He's he's reinvigorated a little bit. But the the party's over at after harvest because after harvest yep. he gets they don't need him anymore. Again, the theme right. of the book is you're not needed anymore. You're cast aside. Yep. And I mean, at that point, all the people in the country that were working that are no longer needed are suddenly going to the city, yeah, trying to find jobs. Exactly. So no one can find a job. Exactly. So. Jorgis does come back. There's a there's a character that we haven't talked about yet, and that's Teda. She is 
Ona's stepmother. So she kind of represents this, the family, mm-hmm. the the redemptive power of a family. And, and she was the one who insisted on the, the Lithuanian wedding that is in chapter one. That is true. Chapter one, yeah. But I mean, when, when Yorgos left, she took over taking care of their firstborn, you know, and really kept the family together. So when he returned, she really convinced him. You know, she she's this this family, familiar, social. She's the ground. She ground. she's she's the sun. Exactly. Like uh, I mean, she she keeps yep. everything ground. So she convinces him to stay and work for her his son. Focus everything on making sure that your son has a good life, that he as good a life as you can have. Right. He found, yeah. He's got a new purpose. Yeah. So. You know, you see this ebb and flow of the mm-hmm. book. Looks like Yorgis is on a good path. He's working. He's feeling better. And their son, Antonis, dies. He, in a terrible way. Yes. And and this is this is a jab at the infrastructure right. that, that he makes. It's, I mean, <laughs> don't want to joke about this, but I mean, it's almost like Upton Sinclair picked, picked the top ten terrible things that can happen to you and made it happen yep. to one. So he's walking along the sidewalk and falls into I think a sewer or because there, it wasn't graded or something like that it dies in the filth and we won't dive into that more but anyway it's a terrible mm-hmm. way to die so Yorgis is temporarily was he working at the fertilizer plant at this point yes okay yeah, the worst job you the can worst have job yeah so so pe- keep in mind people are basically short of killing each other for a job at the meatpacking industries mm-hmm. but there was a job you could pretty much get as long as you're able-bodied, and that was a fertilizer plant, which sounds, okay, wow, it's not so bad. You're thinking of what we put on our grass on, you know, in the spring. Right. No, this is basically chemicals. I mean, yeah, this is stuff that they won't put into the meat that we've yeah. already discussed. Well, this is something <laughs> that, that they won't put into the chemicals that they put into meat. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so basically <laughs> it's a terrible place to work. You're, you're working in a cellar, you're working, and there's terrible fumes, and it's terrible for your respiratory system. Mm-hmm. But the worst part is the smell that you carry around with you all the time. There's a stigma around being a fertilizer worker because you can't get it out of your clothes. You can't get it out of your hair. Wise people could only bathe once a week max. So, and we'll get to the drinking in a minute. But, but he, everywhere he goes, even people who like him basically will only let him hang out for an hour max before they make a move on because patrons will leave establishments yep. that he's at. Yeah. And, and I mean, it agreed. And, and, you know, at this point after he's lost his child, lost his wife, lost his other child, mm-hmm. he really feels he has nothing. I mean, he, like you mentioned, he starts spending all his money on booze and prostitutes. Like, that's where all his money goes now. He's abandoning the family again. Yes, and, you know, the way that it's interesting, the way the book is written, you don't feel like he's doing, like he's wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the book is really written like, here's Yorgos. He represents everything that's good with the American dream. But this is what's happened to him. And as a result, this is how he is. Like, as we're saying saying it out loud now, you're like, come on, man. But, But he's... He, start, he does start drinking when he's still married to Ona. And, yeah. and it's funny because he starts out almost puritanical <laughs> where I'm going to work hard. His his mantra was always, Ona, I will work harder to fix this problem. And then he realizes that hard work just is, isn't going to do it anymore. And then he comes home after a bender once and Ona admonishes him a little bit. But then he kind of gets, after he comes back from the farming lifestyle, he's okay. But then his son dies and he just goes on a bender. And then it it becomes a cycle where there's nowhere for them to go. He, well, there actually, that's not true. There were places for them to go, but there was no wet community outreach for them to know what, that there were places to go. So where they were in Packingtown, the places to go were in downtown Chicago. And he didn't even know that. But so the way that he would stay alive was if you went to a saloon and you bought a drink an hour, they would let you stay. Mm-hmm. And they would stay all night long. And there was a couple of times where he got lucky where a saloon owner would let him sleep in the stairwell. But again, he had this fertilizer smell on him. And this is yeah. just, we're going to call this rock bottom. I mean, would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, at that point, that's when he goes to a speech, um, a speech on socialism. 
Actually, well, and this is a second speech that he'd been to. There was there was a there was one. I think it was it was a religious service. I think mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, and he fell asleep. I mean, he 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 didn't go. He, no. he went because it was a warm place to go, and he got kicked out because he fell asleep. Yeah, I mean, this speech ha- happens near the end of the book, and it talks. It connects with him. He something in the, in what they're saying about socialism and how you know it would protect you, and how capitalism is bad really sunk in with him and in the book it kind of changed again his perspective he got another job he got a different job Upton Sinclair clearly is skewering corporate America right but he's also skewered he skewered the church as well because he got kicked out of that church meeting too and he and he just focuses on the fact that don't fall asleep in these meetings because they'll kick you out and he falls asleep in the socialist meeting Uh and instead of being kicked out they take him home they give him. They help him find a job. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I forget who the guy, who the person is that takes him under his wing. But it's, yeah, I forget. His it's name. the first. Yeah. It's really the first kindness you see in the book from a stranger who's not part of your family. Yeah. And he represents socialism. And you know, at this point, the novel plot is almost abandoned. Um, I mean, it's there, but it's really not. Like, it's there. The, the book is now turning is turning into a you know a socialist manifesto, not even a manifesto, but a propaganda piece. It's almost like Upton Sinclair has paid his due of having to give us a story, and yes. now the point of exactly. uh, of the whole thing is coming about. Right. Yeah. A, a great quote that I read about the last two chapters of the book is socialism is a remedy for the evils of capitalism. Like that could summarize the last ten chapters of the book. So, did you ever read Atlas Shrugged? Uh, I started it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, it, it's you know it's one of those books where it's just it's the capitalists it's the soapbox for the mm-hmm. capitalist cause right. This is kind of the anti Atlas shrugged right. There's these high minded scenes where they're like Yorgos, you should come ha- sit in with this guy who's a capitalist and debate him. Right. And I, I'm just picturing in my mind this. This guy, this Lithuanian who can basically barely speak English, being debating, sitting around a coffee table with, you know, like Lenin and Trotsky in their their turtlenecks. But again, this is, we poke fun at it. Again, because we know what happens. But how how else are you going to get the the message across? At the time, that's right. At the time, that message, that's the message he was trying to point out. Exactly. I mean, these were true problems. You know, the story is melodramatic, but mm-hmm. none of these are – all of these situations are things that actually happen to people. Yeah, absolutely. Just to kind of wrap up Yorgos's story, you know, he return, He discovers socialism. He returns to his family. He gets a job that pays more than he's made at any other job. He, the values that he, that, that he really showed at the beginning of the book come back. Hard work, kindness – um, really wanting the American dream. I mean, a great example of this is he actually convinces another character, character Maria, who is a cousin. She's an interesting character to, to me. Yes. I, I think we haven't touched on her yet. We haven't, no. Because I think she is, she represents, to me, the the fall of man. In, in the book, that's a great that's a great summary for. Him. I mean, yeah. she starts, even though she's a woman, that's very misogynist to me to put it that way. Man is a species. Yes, air quotes. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, she starts the novel as a beautiful young woman with lots of potential. She's got a fiance who's a a kind person who plays the. I think he plays the violin or the fiddle or something. Everyone, everyone did back. I feel like yeah. I feel like if you look back just, then. Anyway, yeah, and I mean, you know, so she starts the book, there's promise, there's hope, right? And by the end of the book, she has turned to prostitution, and she's addicted to morphine. Yorgos comes back from the farms, finds her, and says, what are you doing? You know, how have you... And her statement was, if someone has something worth to sell that's worth something... You have to sell it. Such a statement on capitalism, yeah, right? Yeah, and she and so Yorgos brings her back from the brink. Mm-hmm. But again, this is this is Upton Sinclair's way of saying all these resources are available because we found a socialist network. All these good things happen because Yorgos found a socialist network. The workers united, and mm-hmm. at the end of the book, 
there's a rally. It, it ends on a rally, and and the, and the works and the words are. And again, we're on full on full tilt political yeah. diatribe, Atlas Shrugged in reverse mode. Yeah, yep. and the last words are Chicago will be ours. Chicago will be ours. Right. I'm not a socialist, mm-hmm. you know, but you can't help but be fired up by their fervor at the end of the book, mm-hmm. and uh, you got to get this feeling where Upton Sinclair is sure. That socialism is going to save you. Well, he, he doesn't know how it's going to happen. And I mean, that's it. Sinclair's goal of the book was to outline the issues, as, as we mentioned, with the lack of worker rights in America, as well as the values of socialism. And, and that's what happened, right? All the workers got their rights immediately, right? After, yeah, that's much. Not- so, you know, this kind of ties back to the sensationalism we talked about with. Um, reality television, right? But the world... It always comes back to people. reality TV with you. Can you just stay off reality man, TV for great, one man. episode? Yeah. All right. If you can keep off Russia. All right. We'll call it a day. <laughs> um, you know, the reading public fixated on food safety as the novel's most pressing issue. Like, that is what the people focused on. The stories, I mean, the quote I talked about with the tuberculous-filled meat. Well, he got undercut by his publisher a little bit because he wanted... The, the whole point of the book to be – again, he hated me. He, could, he was a vegetarian. Yeah. The publisher then took it and sold it to the public as a food safety novel. Well, I mean Sinclair was quoted, you know, my book was popular not because the public cared about any of the workers but simply because the public didn't want to, did not want to eat tubercular beef. Yeah. Like that's, that's the heart of it. And he said – I mean his favorite quote was, I aim for, the, for everyone's hearts and I hit their, their stomach by accident. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And it's interesting because today, like we're talking about it in schools, talk about the jungle and how it really was a it was a story about socialism versus capitalism. So as time has passed on, that's really what has happened. But at the time, that was not the focus. No, no, it, it really wasn't. And mm-hmm. but that that being said, there was some real good that came out of it. There was two key acts. So there was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. So yeah, before before we do that, before you get into that, what led to that, right? Um, let's get let's circle back. To, you know, Teddy Roosevelt did not like Upton Sinclair. He called him a crackpot, you know, pu- privately. But there was a huge fervor about this book, and so he focused on what the public focused on, and that was the food qualities, right? So he sent in some investigators. I think before another pu- private quote he said was seventy five percent of what Upton Sinclair says in his book is not true. But the yeah. 25% that is, we should look at. So he sends in investigators to the, some meatpacking plants in Chicago. Now, they know they're coming, so they, they actually try to do a cleanup beforehand, before they get there. They get there, and they see the conditions are terrible. They basically back up everything that was in the book. I think the only thing they didn't back up was seeing someone fall into a vat of cooking meat. That just sounds terrible. Yeah, I mean, so whether Teddy Roosevelt believed him or not, believed him or not, his investigators came back and said, "Yes, this this novel is true. And he this be- is what's happening." He began to soften. I think T.R. sent a uh, a note to his publisher and said, "Can you let him chill out and let me run the country for a minute?" <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so he uh, maybe he <laughs> no what the public is outraged yes. again, not for the reasons that Upton Sinclair wanted, but the Meat Inspection Act comes out and. Basically, you have mandated FDA approvers in every meatpacking house, and they had to give their their famous blue stamp, which was either condemned or approved meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything got – and if they didn't like the way it smelled, if they, anything like that, it was gone. So before, you could have – you could keep dead carcasses off to well, the side. And yeah. before, those ins- there were inspectors, but they were paid off by the owners and corrupt And distracted. Some of them were just as simple. Sure. You could have a good inspector that just was distracted in a right. coy way by, by one of the employees. You had now, after work closed, you would have dead animals being slaughtered in different areas mm-hmm. and then being put into the canned meat. All that's gone. Right, so now you have, and I'm sure this didn't change overnight. I'm sure there were hiccups, but but you had a inspector, a group of inspectors at every plant, it, to the point where it cost thirty million dollars to to implement this. So it wasn't just something that yeah. was, uh, you know, thirty million dollars t- at that point. That's it was crazy. It was, and that was Upton Sinclair's biggest issue with that was the meat packers were ecstatic with this. So there was all this public backlash. And the U.S. basically passed this bill and solved their problems for them without them having to pay a dime. 
Upton Sinclair wanted the meatpacking industry to pay that $30 million. He, did, he didn't want the government. So basically the way Upton That's Sinclair looked at it was, great, we're having to pay for the, to keep these guys in line mm-hmm. instead of making, making them pay themselves. But for, by hook or by crook, we have, we have a, a better process. Another thing that we got was the Pure Dr- Food and Drug Act of 1906. So you, you can't put all these additives. You can't, it, these are going after the snake oil salesmen that the TR are after and just ba- basically being able to sell all these quack remedies. You mm-hmm. have to put what is on, right. what is in the, the first m- ingredient. Exactly. I, don't, I think that was the first ingredient thing was later, I think. But I think you had to put the contents of what was in the package, the medicine and the package of meat in yeah. on on the, the label, which was a big step. And the Pure Food and Drug Act actually established what was called the Bureau of Chemistry, which oh. is now what we call the FDA. And again, because we're focusing on meat here, but drug remedies were, were a huge deal. I mean, imagine, and, and this is a different, that's a different show, but imagine your kid's sick and you're pulling out that elixir and you don't know if there's heroin in it, you know, or laudanum. I mean, laudanum was a big thing that was an yeah. opiate at the time. That I mean, I can't imagine. We we take Tylenol for granted now. Mm-hmm. It's just different times. Now, I, I want to mention one thing on the Pure Food, Food and Drug Act. That that act, or the initiation of that act, was actually started 27 years earlier. The reason it went through, a lot of people attribute to the jungle and the fervor it created. Yeah. That after 27 years, it finally went into effect in, two, in 1906. Yeah. And then uh, just kind of some of the other legacy today that we have... All the, all the food reforms happened kind of immediately, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, implementation is always a while. Unfortunately, organized labor, it took a while, right? So there, there was still a lot, yes. of, a lot of boom and a, and a lot of bust, and the, 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 the workers were still being exploited. In many ways, things didn't really turn a corner for the workers until 1935 with the National Labor Relations Act. Noted as the author of a law passed by Congress and signed by the president, to adjudicate the nation's labor union disputes is New York Senator Robert F. Wagner. By this act, employers are bound to bargain collectively with an organized majority of their workers. Few weeks later in Aurora, Missouri, begins for the Wagner Act the ordeal of every contested law. Newly organized workers at an Aurora flour mill demand union recognition. You gotta keep in mind, we're in the, so it took a depression to, to create change. Um, unions ended up causing the most meaningful change. So Upton Sinclair, in his high-mindedness, God bless him, thought the unions are, you know, the workers are going to unite. It's going to happen in by high-minded intellectuals. And no, what it took was was strikes. And just to get to highlight the strikes at the time, there was the average number of strikes started to grow dramatically. This doesn't even get to where we to where the change actually happened. In the 1880s, from 1881 to 85, there was 498 strikes. In 1901 to 1905, there are 2,793. And what what ended up happening was unions ended up banding together. And and again, this is another thing where we have to take a pill. The union debates we're having today, the changes we're going for are not as wide of swings, right? There's people really question the need for unions in some ways, and we're not going to get into that here. But back then, what happened was unions, workers started to organize, Mm -hmm. but there weren't mass, you could could hurt one plant, right? But they hadn't organized to a point where they could affect an industry. Correct. So the first time that really happened was the the Pullman strike. In, In 1936, the Congress of International Organizations, what we now know today as the AFL CIO, so they banded together and really started coordinating their activities. So that's what it took. It wasn't the high-minded intellectualism, but it took the brass yeah. knuckles, sometimes violent organization of well, workers to, to combat. And I mean, to back up what you're saying, Adam, Teddy Roosevelt was not he was not looking to support the workers. He was looking to make sure that those organized unions don't take advantage of the businesses. Yeah, and again... I'm, so, I mean, the, it was a change in... The, there was, and I, I'm going to sound like I'm just really... There was a lot of things that were wrong with TR, but when, when he <laughs> when he started as the Undersecretary of the Navy in, in 1898, I think, under, well, under McKinley, he was this war hawk. He was this, what we would call today, a radical Republican. And he, yeah. in 1912, runs against Eugene Debs, and he's the Bull Moose Party. He's not t- Taft as the Republican candidate. Correct. 
TR has run two terms by this point. And Taft has become a Republican, but conservative, mm-hmm. right? Just, just let's keep things going the way they're going. And TR, through this process, you know, he's, he's, he's had some time to see kind of how things are going. And he sees Deb's platform. I think part of it was real politic. He kind of saw the writing on the wall a little bit. But you kind of get, really get the feeling that to some level he really sees that there's some issues with big business. He gives some really big— Which is such a change. Yeah. It, well, it is. And it's—, it's From kind, his old— It is. Yeah. And I think it just kind of shows how— Yeah. And it's amazing, again, that for the hawk that he was, he didn't get us into any major conflicts as a, as a president. I know. know. Yeah. It's ama- yeah, I read a quote from him about mm-hmm. that, yeah. know, that, that he— he almost wanted to get into a war because that would prove that he was a good president. And, I mean, today he's still known as one of the top five, top ten presidents. But but he was a president during peacetime. Yeah. Never during a war. Yeah. It, there, there was a lot of change happening really quickly mm-hmm. at that point, And I think that he kind of embodies all, a lot of that change. Yep. So. Absolutely. So, got anything else, sir? No, I'm, thanks for listening to us. This one is a little bit heavier than our last one, but the jungle was just such a, a moment for us in history classes when we were in junior high that we wanted to talk about it and um, show that show the American moment that it created and the changes that took effect. Yeah, so I think uh, we're tentatively we're behind a little bit because you got selfish and took a trip to France. I know. Oui, oui. Uh, so if you wanna if you wanna follow us, you can find us on Facebook at American Moments Podcast on Facebook. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Adam Vanami, at A D A M V O N N A H M E. You can also do us a really big solid, and this is the biggest thing you can do for us. Probably give us a five star review in iTunes. And write a review. If you do that, email me, let me know, and I'll send you a $25 Starbucks gift card. There's these really weird algorithms that iTunes uses, and I'm finding this out. And it, the more reviews and the and the more five-star ratings you get, you get on the news and noteworthy. Like, you know how Finding Richard Simmons got so popular? Uh-huh. Now, Richard Simmons. He's found though now. Fascinating. He's he's found though. Apparently now, he dude. wasn't lost. I, you know, sometimes people just don't want to be found. Oh, that's right. I, you know, hey, that's that's his right. So we still haven't seen him though. Just to say, he's you know, issued statements, but nobody has seen him. In I think years. it's his housekeeper. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it always comes back to the housekeeper. Something like that. Well, anyway, everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks so, so much. Thanks, everyone. All right.